This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code VCANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I don't have to tell you what kind of year 2020 has been. From a pandemic to social unrest, from indefatigable wildfires to an endless election, enough has happened in one year to make me want to lay back and sit out the rest of the decade. But despite the many challenges we faced, I'm glad that we've been here to share part of this year's journey with you. It's our hope that whatever you faced this year, we've provided you a small respite from the endless noise and perpetual anxiety. Considering that many of us have been locked up for a good part of the year, it seems appropriate that Lucas Folia should be our final guest for this season, as his work is tethered to that special relationship that human beings have to the land. Though we haven't been able to enjoy the outdoors in the way that we would often like, it hasn't changed that we are still reliant and responsible for the planet we call home. Raised on a family farm in New York, Lucas has dedicated his life to work that combines aspects of landscape, portraiture, and documentary photography to tell stories that are far too easy for us to overlook and dismiss, especially during times like these. Lucas does the work to ensure that we don't. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure really to have you. Yeah, it's been fascinating to go through your your work. It, it, it was, what I find kind of interesting about your sort of approach is that you leverage your work in a variety, so many different ways. You, you're you know, a fine art photographer, but you're also an activist, and you're also sort of a storyteller. And you're finding different ways for your, for your work to be seen, to be shared, to be used. That's one of the things that I, I, I want to talk to you about, but I thought we would start just talking about your beginnings, especially growing up on a farm on Long Island. Were your parents first-generation farmers? Did they come to it from from another lifestyle, or this was was this a generational thing? Funny thing about farming is if you go back enough generations, you'll find another farmer, no matter yeah. who you are, right? Like, yeah. So my great-grandparents on both sides were immigrants who came from farm families. And my grandparents, who lived on the farm next door to my parents, had worked at a local college, Queens College, on, uh, in, on the edge of New York City. In Queens. And when they saved up enough money from working at Queens, they bought the farm. And then my father was the first, first person in that line of the family that was a full-time farmer. But my dad also had other projects, you know, helping other farms, farmers preserve their land, getting grass clippings to not be thrown away and sent out to farms in Eastern Long Island for fertilizer. He's, he's always active mm-hmm. in the community because my grandparents were our family believed in education, believed in activism, believed in being connected to land. And so we had a sort of a, a, a community among each other and our friends who would come visit the farm 
that believed in farming, but also believed in principles about the environment. And did your mom do that as well? My mom and dad would always, they farm a lot more together in the past couple years. Growing up, my mom, who was a storyteller, when she was started publishing the storybooks, uh, or, and then her picture books and recordings, she would perform in all the local schools and then also actually, actually travel around the country and the world telling stories. In a sense, what I do with photography is a combination of my parents, where I tell story stories through photographs about people's connection to land. When you were growing up, were there many farms around your area? Because I know um, there's been a lot of development over the, over the years since your parents bought, bought the farm. But at the time, uh, was there a larger community of, of uh, farming than, than there was now, than there is now? Well, so I was born in the early 80s, 1983, when my parents were growing, when my dad was growing up on that same farm, the area around it wasn't developed. And there were a lot more farms. By the time my dad married my mom and they had me, there were, there was a lot of other open land. There were less farms. I remember being friends with the other farmers in the town. And I remember a lot of them, as I was growing up, selling their land for suburban developments because people would live in suburban houses in my town and get on the train or the highway and go into New York City to work. So the identity that I had as I was growing up was one that was very different from our neighbors and from other kids in school. You know, and my parents are one of the few, very few families who were agricultural, who chose to maintain that lifestyle because there were so many economic incentives to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. So how did that, sh- how, how would you say that sort of shaped your perspective in terms of your your understanding of, of the relationship between people and, and the land? Because I know that's informed so much of your work. I think it, it showed me how connected we are to land, to seasons, to resources that we don't fully control. In the sense that everyone I meet eats food, one type or another. Mm-hmm. The majority of people who I know right now cannot picture in their minds exactly where everything they eat comes from, or they can't look at the table their computer is, is on and, and know where the wood, if it's wood, came from, or stone, or even plastic, like to, to know the systems that allow us to live our lives. So by growing up the way I did, my parents were very interested in us knowing those systems. And so photography for me has been a way of being able to take anything I want to understand or learn about, and, I, and it gives me a permission to look at it. And by looking at it, I can learn about it. And then by making an interesting photograph, I can tell other people about it too. You started your photography when your mom lent you your, your dad's camera, and you started photographing around the, the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what spurred, what spurred that, that gesture from, from your mother? Well, I, my parents worked a lot in the summer. Cause my mom, my dad was on the, on the farm full time. My mom would also be helping my father. My mom would also be doing storytelling. It was a busy time, like dawn to sunset. My dad says gardening is fun and farming is like really hard work. And so they would sort of try to get us off into programs in the town to give them some space during the summers. And through, we would barter a lot. And we were, they were fr- through friends. Um, I was in a local camp program. I forget actually what it was. Like a, it was like a you know, sports travel, something or other. To, and I was never really oriented that way. And at the program that for one summer, the only girls who were there were a crowd of girls who were friends with a woman I had broken up with when I was like 14. (laughs) And none of them talked to me. 
and I was so sad to like not be popular at, as a, like a young teenager mm-hmm. that I quit the camp and I was just hanging out and moping around my family's farm. And then my mom basically called my aunt Gina, who with her wife, Margo, were, were they going to Provincetown to hang out, to hang out for a part of the summer uh, with a whole bunch of you know, friends. And so they sent me off with my dad's camera to Provincetown. And I was just wandering around with the camera while my aunts were hanging out with all their friends. Then when I got back from those, from, ta- from that trip, my mom showed, you know, printed the pictures for me and liked some of them and said, oh, why don't you, you know, spend time for the summer photographing around the farm? And you know, if, if we can make a story out of the pictures, we'll call the local library, the Huntington, South Huntington Library, and you can have a, a, a photo show in the lobby of the library as you walk in. Oh, well, that's quite, quite the start. So then I had a project. I think I was 14, 15, something like that. Uh, and then I photographed around the farm for the whole summer. And then we did, my first photo show was in this little glass case with these little four by six inch prints so that my mom helped me like make a little frame for each one of them, a little cardboard frame. Yeah. And we put it up in the, in the, in the glass case when you walked in the library doors. And it was an identity. It made me feel like I, it was, I realized, and I, I learned I could do, I could talk to anybody if I had a camera. So by the time I was 16, I was telling everyone I wanted to be a photographer. Do you feel that, at least before that, that you kind of lacked that, that, that skill, that that was something you felt awkward about in terms of being able to engage, engage with people, especially strangers? We grew up talking to people because it was one of the last farms in our town. Mm-hmm. Because my parents, hippies has changed. If I say hippie today, it means something different than it did when I was a kid. Yeah. So my parents were you know, back to the landers, very liberal, very left from the, who, who grew up in the sixties and seventies. Uh, and they had a, a wide community of people who lived in the suburbs of Long Island who would come to the farm as their social center. It was a place where a lot of people came to visit and hang out. So I grew up talking to a lot of people. I always liked talking to a lot of people. And as I got to be a teenager, suddenly people would look at me and say like, well, why are you talking to me? And I'm like, wait, you want to like, is it, but if I have a camera, and I'm making a photograph of them, and I'm giving copies back to them, then there's a reason to be somewhere. There's also a service, right? So my, in my high school, my first project was, I, there was a local group that funded uh, a nonprofit in our, in our town that funded organizations that helped women in some way, um, homelessness, job training, et cetera. And I just reached out to them, and they like sent me all over the town photographing different, different nonprofit activities. And then I gave them all the negatives and the prints and they use them to promote what they do. And so it, it gave, it was a, it was a way I could, I don't know, so have a purpose. And also it was, I just loved photographing. During your undergraduate degree, you began work on a project that eventually turned into your, your first book, A Natural Order. That was after actually. That was after. So what was the first project? then? Well, so, Everything I've told you so far is stuff that I don't normally say in interviews because it's it's a less concise story. Yeah. The thing I'll normally say, what I normally say is, you know, I, I left college and then inspired by how my family grew up, I started traveling to find other families who who had the same idea or ideology as my family, but to more of an extreme, living completely self-sufficiently. I started that when I was 23. When I went off to college, just before... I was in a program at the main photographic workshops. That's now the main media workshops mm-hmm. where I, I would mow lawns 
and stay up overnight printing in the dark room in exchange for having photo classes. And then I would hitchhike around Maine taking pictures. Oh, okay. I, w- I, was, I always liked traveling and adventuring. So I would just go to the corner and, and hitchhike and see where I ended up and make portraits of people. And at that point, when I was 18, Arnold Newman was a, a port- was in, then is in his young 80s, was visiting the main media workshops. And someone told me to talk to him or kind of set us up to have a conversation. And he saw these black and white portraits I was making and invited me to come work at his studio. So then for college, on breaks from being at school, I would go into New York City, which felt very far away from my family's farm, even though it was an hour train ride, and print Arnold Newman's photographs in his darkroom, and then wander around and photograph. So I'm working on a book of those photographs now with Stanley Barker, a, a, a publisher, Yeah. because the year when I was photographing in New York, when I was 18 and 19, was the first year after the 9-11 attacks. And I had this idea to, that to photograph, make portraits of strangers after an event that shook the city. So that was really my first coherent project. Before we, before we, we talk about the project, what did you learn from handling and printing Arnold Newman's photographs? Oh, that was, it was wild. I mean, like growing up where I grew up, I was really lucky to have parents that supported me to learn photography. And we had a close family friend, Peter Shear, who told me about, who taught me the basics of how a camera worked and uh, basic composition and storytelling. But then when I was 18 and met Arnold, I never knew the community that makes up an art world. I never knew about the artists who he was making portraits of. Mm -hmm. That part of the art world wasn't how I grew up. You know, we, we had, we were more oriented on folk art, folk tales, you know, environmental activism but every time I'd print a picture for Arnold of an artist, I'd look up the artist. So I had this like year of art history from looking up all the artists whose portraits he made. And then I would have to carry his prints down to galleries. And I never knew where the galleries were. And so I'd deliver, the, I'd deliver a print to Howard Greenberg Gallery. And then I'd walk around and like walk into other gallery shows. It really changed how I saw photography as an art form and how I saw photography in the context of other people making art that wasn't photography. Because that's, that's, that is a, a really small but very important niche for a lot of photographers who, who hope to earn living. Not earn a living, oh. but at least fund what, whatever projects they're working on, like, like you are. Mm-hmm. Learning to understand how to sort of introduce yourself to that to that world, how to understand how your work fits in and the, and the value of the work becomes really important. Would you say that that, that, that time with Arnold really gave you at least the germ of what, what you would have to do going into the future to be able to, to leverage that at all? Or? Yeah, that's really insightful, 100%. I mean, the people I met who are photographers before I met Arnold were identified by one thing, like they worked for a newspaper or they were an art photographer. And the style of photographs that I make is very different than Arnold Newman. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to make his type of pictures. But what I really respected about what he did, or one of the things I respected among many, was balancing an editorial work, working for for magazines, and photographs as fine art. Right. Because before then I knew about photographs as activism, 
and photographs as storytelling. But then from Arnold, I learned about even how to create a business and how to interact with editors and how to interact with gallerists, what it means to addition a photograph, how to think of the value of the print as an object mm -hmm. and the value of the image in the story it tells. That was the first time that I, I learned about any of that. Because what really fascinates me about your work and, and sort of the ecosystem that you've created for yourself is that y your subject matter is oftentimes, it's partly the landscape, it's also portraiture, it's about, it's also sort of documentary work. And it's often about, as we said, sort of like the relationship or the alternative relationship that these people have with, you know, with, with the land and the entire lifestyle that they've created for themselves. And sometimes I think people would look at that work and, and say, well, this is, this is one type, one type of work that serves this one particular purpose in terms of, you know, maybe editorial work in terms of journalism. But it, it seems like the work that you create can be used and is used in so in a, in a variety of different ways. And that you, you're not bound by just one, just one perspective in terms of how to, how you want to use the work. And I think that so many people feel like, well, if I'm doing this kind of work, then it can only be this one thing that I can only dedicate this work to just being sort of documentary work. And I really can't consider it for, or they don't consider it, not that they can't, but they don't, they don't in, include the bandwidth to think about how the different ways that I can leverage it. And it seems like you do that to, to a good degree of success. Does that make any sense? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so I, I love that a, that a photograph can be used in so many different ways, right? It can be in a book as part of a as part of a, uh, a series. It can be framed on the wall of a gallery or museum or in a festival. Um, it can be published in magazines. It can also be used in nonprofits to further a cause or and, uh, to, to be used as part of advocacy. Mm -hmm. And they can be used on people's Facebook feeds or, you know, or any one of the many social media platforms that's out today. And the way I started thinking about it is that if I have an idea uh, for a project, usually the idea had to be meaningful both for its content, you know, the thing I wanted to learn about, yeah, and also for the craft. I had to, I had to be able to learn more about the making of photographs by doing the project. Because I've never wanted, I've never found it interesting to be an artist who repeats the same thing over and over again right. and project to project. So if, if I could find something new in terms of content and craft in a project, that would be the trunk of the tree. And I'd work on it for as long as I need to, to make a tall enough trunk that it's reaching some sunlight. Mm. And then all of the different ways that I'm using the pictures are branches growing off of that trunk. Right. So for instance, for my last project, human nature, there was one part of that that felt meaningful where I, I collaborated with a, an NGO called Winrock International and went to Guyana in South America to photograph the system that Guyana is using to count all of the trees in its rainforest that covers the majority of the country and help preserve them, you know, by managing how they're used. So I was down there for that one little piece and then I published Human Nature, and I, and I put one picture in that, in Human Nature. Those same photographs were used 
by the forestry department in the country of Guyana to advocate for their work within the country. Those same photographs were used by the government of Norway, who is then donating money to Guyana to help preserve their rainforest. Right? So these, these photographs are like floating around these advocacy, nonprofit, government programs to help preserve a rainforest. Mm-hmm. There's a photograph in my book. I then help publish, publish that photograph in magazines to raise awareness with the captions. And then I've, an editor who I really respect, Donna Cohen at Bloomberg, called me and was asking for story ideas. And I said, well, you know, I think there's more of a story here. And there's only one road that goes all the way through the rainforest. And then they funded me to go back to, t- to go the entire length of the only road that goes all the way through the rainforest in Guyana and photograph all along the way about this government program to save the rainforest, about the influence of, of China as they're helping to develop areas along the road and develop the road itself. And it was this wild experience. And then I had already published the book, but we published a magazine article in Bloomberg Business Week, and then sent that article back to the forestry department in Guyana, and they're using the article to further promote the programs and preserve the work that they're doing um, against the pressure for development. And then now I'm planning an exhibition, or in the starting to plan an exhibition in Italy that will include some work from human nature, and I'm going to include new photographs from the trip to Guyana mm. in that. So it's an ecosystem in which the, the different parts feed each other too. You know, the, the nonprofit sent me to Guyana. That photograph ended up in my book because it was in the book that helped, helped me get a magazine to send me back down there to further the project. But all along the way, I'm only making photographs that feel personal to me. I don't pretend that I can do, I can be another photographer. If someone hires me, if I'm doing it for myself, et cetera, I'm just making the things I know I can make that feel personal. And important because yeah. it sounded when you said when you said earlier that one of the things you you ask yourself is what can you learn from this that it's not like oh this is a good idea that i could pitch that i could that could sell that i think would be a good subject matter is because it's it's speaking to your own curiosity and mm-hmm. that's and that's a great way of of, of keeping it personal but l- talk to me about becoming or or or, or being temporarily part of these communities that you, that you visit because you spend, you know, a good amount of time with, with people, many of whom have decided to live in very distinctly in, in ways that are distinctly different from the way that most of us live in our, you know, in our, in our big cities. And so it's not like photographer pops in with any regularity to come and make photographs of them. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you work amidst, amidst these people and gain and gain their trust so you can do your work. Well, but it goes, I mean, in every area of my life, I believe in making friends, not networking, right? Like if I'm going out to photograph somebody, they're a person I'm getting to know and collaborating with whom I'm collaborating. They're not a subject, right? And, and I think by sticking around it, like I've been working on a newer project on a longer, newer, longer term project uh, about communities in every major religion in the United States, uh, who care for the environment because of their faith. And one of the first shoots I did for that project was a baptism that was happening in, in Georgia. And there's a preacher from Atlanta, uh, Pastor Gregory Hughes, who's, who organizes this baptism. And he has some beautiful, beautiful way of speaking about how the Bible inspires him to care about the world and to try to help people care for the world. I showed up early to the photo shoot and 
they were struggling to get a sound system set up in time for people to come in. And I just helped carry some tables and like set up a sound system. And we just, you know, and then once it was set up, like I knew I wanted to photograph the baptism and I grew up Quaker and Jewish. Like I, we pray, it's like either Jewish rituals or pray, or sitting in silence. Like the way that they prayed was not how I grew up praying, but it was amazing music and everyone's dancing. I just start dancing. And then, um, they apparently film me saying, look, we can, we can even get the photographer to dance. <laughs> and, and then by the time we got to the photo shoot, it, it was, it just felt like we were a friend. And it wasn't like a question of like, am I allowed to be there? Mm-hmm. It wasn't me sneaking a picture. It was, you know, I was part of the place. And I admit that by being there, I'm changing the place. And also want to be really careful about as a white man, I'm not manipulating the power structure to like get in somewhere I shouldn't be with that someone doesn't want me to be. Right. So trying to find ways to through friendship, through dialogue, go where I'm invited, have someone know what I'm doing and what my intentions are. I show them the pictures first. I give copies back for free to everybody. So the stories build that I make in collaboration and dialogue with people who I'm getting to be friends with because I'm photographing. I know. And if it's someone living off grid, like you were mentioning the off grid project in North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, and Georgia, that was my first book, A Natural Order. I mean, I, I grew up on a farm. I didn't, I don't live in a house that I made from the, the bark on, lo- on, on nearby poplar trees, but you know, I, I know how to carry water from a stream mm-hmm. and you know, I know how to cut firewood and I like working with folks. It just makes it more fun. I, I don't know. It's just always been, it's more fun to be part of a place than to look at it from a distance. When I attended UC Berkeley back in the day, I usually made a weekly trip to Moe's Bookstore on Telegraph Avenue. Moe's was, and hopefully still is, a used bookstore where I began my relationship with photography books. It was there that I bought used edition of books that are still in my collection decades after I graduated. It was those monographs that taught me more about seeing and photography than anything I ever learned in a classroom. I have returned to those and dozens of other books time after time to learn and understand what great photography is and looks like. Each new book often opened a new facet of seeing that I could aspire to. When I recently received my first monograph from my membership in the Charcoal Book Club, I felt that same sense of anticipation and wonder. Mark Steinmetz's South Central is a beautiful collection of black and white photographs that he made in Knoxville, Tennessee in the early 90s. The images introduced me to another world and revealed how a community can be captured in a sincere and intimate way. That, to me, is a wonderful thing. And you can enjoy that same experience by becoming a member of Charcoal Book Club. They curate and offer books from great contemporary photographers. Because of their special relationships with publishers and photographers, they offer you signed editions delivered to you each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. And and if you're not feeling a month's selection, you can swap it out for a different one of similar value. Visit their website and see what they have to offer. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. 
thecandridframe.com today. And remember to use the code THECANDRIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who have chosen to support The Candid Frame financially this year. I know it's not been an easy year for many people financially, so to those people who did, I can't thank you enough. And if you enjoyed this season and haven't contributed yet, it's not too late, and it's easy to do by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the frame. Just $5 a month makes a big difference for us. Thank you as always for your support. Because you're going in with a sort of, without sort of a preconceived idea in terms of what the story is, because you're, you're, it seems like you're, you're keeping yourself open, where do you find that the story starts taking shape? Because I know that with some of the projects, you've shot thousands of images, and in terms of the book, you might only have 200 pictures, say, in a book, but you might have several thousand. Usually, usually and like the most I've ever published is like the new book is going to have 70 pictures, maybe. 70 pictures, wow, okay. That's the most. So yeah. in terms of kind of because you don't want to just shoot willy-nilly so, so but in terms of having some sense of clarity in terms of am i producing what i need right because you don't want to have to have produced a lot of photographs and later on you sit down to put it all together and you realize there's a bunch of stuff that you're missing but then it, it, okay so two parts of that okay um i think about that so one when i have to start off that i believe everyone's world makes sense to them Right, so even if I'm photographing something that I think is bad for the world, like I, I don't understand gold, and I photograph gold mines making holes where there used to be mountains in a landscape I love in Nevada, and I got to be friends with some people working at the gold mines. I can still be friends with them and like know why they're driving a truck to haul ore to be crushed and mixed with cyanide to make gold, and also why they love that landscape and they're living in that area of the country because they love the landscape. Like, people are complex and they can hold multiple things at once. And my belief system could make me justify what I do, mm-hmm. make it have another belief system that justifies what they do. And one of the biggest issues I see in the country right now is everyone is so is like holding strong to their own beliefs and thinking that other people are wrong and creating these oppositions. And it doesn't change anyone's mind about anything. And if, if I get to be friends with someone who believes something different and they trust me and we're having a conversation, I can understand why they believe they do. And maybe I could share why I believe what I do. And then they could learn from that. I learn from them. And I'm not in it to convince them something different, even though I want to change the world. And by changing that system, I might, it might change them. I'm still going to be transparent about that, but I'm going to share why. And I found mo- I've learned more and other people have learned more with me in dialogue when I, I go about it that way, then if I come in with all the propaganda about do this certain thing, otherwise you're a bad person. Yeah, that's, I think in Front Country, I think is the book where you, where you show like people using the land like for ranching, farming. Yeah. And towards the tail end, you see the mining. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, I, yeah, we structured the book in a way that it starts with images that the American West is famous for. Mm-hmm. with little twists, you know, everyday life in the American West, 
with references to the iconic images of the cowboys and the ghost towns. And then the book slowly transitions towards mining and the, the jobs that develop land in a region that's famous for being wild, but that also allow people to live there. I'm jumping around as we talk between different book projects, but, but when you're asking about how do I know if I'm missing something is if I go into a project or I want to learn about, you know, like I said, the craft and the content, and I'm photographing through recommendations and introductions of friends and friends of friends and other people I meet along the way. And when I come home to edit, the, I, it's important to me that the best photographs make the story, regardless of my initial intentions. Okay, that makes sense. Right, so the process of editing for me is not to like make sure I covered all the things I needed to cover. It's to see what the story is based on the best photographs. Well, what it's interesting about that that book is that you you turn you turn the idea of what that that idea could have been kind of on its ear mm-hmm. because it could have been something that sort of idealized that part of the country as it often is, or you could have also turned it to just show the destructiveness of you know the mining industry and how bad it is. But by combining them both in the way that you that you do. You're you're show you're showing what's happening there in all its complexity and all of its contradictions, and I think uh, you know I think that's really sort of an interesting choice to make because as you said earlier, everyone is sort of camped into their in their camps of of absolutes, right? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating that as a photographer and an artist that that not only that you sort of made that choice, but that you were able to put it together and talk about it and share it and convince people to buy into it, even though it, it isn't as diametrically opposed as most people are accustomed to. Sure. Just people's stories. But that's, it's also, uh, if I believe in something enough, it, it makes it easier to navigate negative reviews or responses. Mm-hmm. Right? For instance, some people who really either bought the book or saw the work and, wanted that work to be about their image of the Wild West were very critical of that book because they didn't understand why these sort of pictures of mining towns, you know, where smoke billowing out of the smokestacks would be mixed with the beautiful horse of the, the beautiful picture of the white horse walking towards a wild elk in a snowstorm. Yeah. I say, you know, if you just made more of those horse pictures, it'd be a better book. <laughs> you know, and, and also people who were environmentalists or activists said, you know, you're making these things beautiful. They're ugly for the world. Why not show them as being as ugly as they are? And I think that beauty is a way of inviting someone to look and thinking about, think about something for a long time. And I want to make photographs that have an aesthetic that compels someone to look at them. Right. And I want the, co- the content to be nuanced enough and complex enough that they keep on looking. You fund much of your, some of your, a good percentage of your projects from the selling of uh, like numbered fine, fine prints. And that's the selection, the display of, of images for the purposes of fine art are much different from that for the purposes of, of the book. I, I'm just curious in terms of just from marketing, in terms of sales wise, how you have to consider your, the photographs that you end up selling as fine art as opposed to the books. So, I want to be clear that every photograph I use, whether it's in a magazine 
a book or a print on a wall of a, of a gallery is a photograph that to me feels like a complex, uh, meaningful and beautiful photograph. And so a filter as I'm, as I'm choosing what images will go in a book mm-hmm. is what are my favorite photographs? My favorite photographs are usually the ones that will also operate and be on, on, could be on the wall of an exhibition. Okay. So I, I have a lot of friends who put in photographs in their books that they would never put in a gallery show. And I say, yeah, but I mean, I, un- I mean, I can understand for the narrative, but then, you know, make, make better pictures to put, put in the book. You know, I mean, like, why are you going to your B-roll for the thing that's, that's you know, you're showing to the world? Um, so I, I, want the, I want the photographs in the book to be the same photographs that I put in a gallery or in a magazine. So the, you're working with, it looks like a medium format. So you're making large, large prints. Yeah. I've always uh, liked t- medium format. Yeah, so tell me about the, the the advantages that you find, especially with the creation of the prints by using that, that format. Well, I, I can answer actually two things, because you asked about economy before. Yes, you've yeah. asked about that a few times. I think I, I feel like I've breezed over it. And and also about medium format. I would say, relative to the economy, I found that the metaphor I gave of the trunk of the tree and the branches, Right. same thing for economy. Or maybe a different metaphor for economy is, if a farmer has one field with one crop planted, and that crop doesn't do well, that farmer is pretty hungry. Yeah. But if you, have a, if you have a bunch of different crops planted and one doesn't do well, another one does well, you, you, got, you got enough to eat, right? So I make income from a combination of print sales, of grants, because the work I do has a cause in it. I can, I can, have, I can apply for grants around, that, around the cause. Um, also art, art, art grants, magazine commissions. And I mean, most of it's, Prints just because the value of them is higher than uh, average magazine commission, but the but the combination of all those things let the world change and make it more likely that I can feel okay. Yeah. There's definitely been a lot of luck in that, also, but I've worked really hard to, in that process. The medium format is something I chose because it lets me work across those different mediums easily. I started off with film and I switched in 2006 to a medium format digital back, which I only I was only able to get because of the credit card scam. What? We, we, my mom got in the mail this like, I mean, I hate credit cards and what they do to people. And we got a scam in the mail where it said, if you sign up for this credit card and you'll get $30,000 no interest loan, but then everything you buy on the credit card, you can't pay off until you pay off that loan. And... And then so you're paying interest on everything you buy and they basically guarantee you getting into debt. Right. So my mom was going to throw it out. I said, well, what if we just like, what if I got that as a loan to start my photo business? And we cut up the credit card. Is there any fees? And we looked at this, no fees. So I got like a $30,000 no interest loan from a credit card company. <laughs> and, and, and bought a computer, a camera, and a minivan. And I, I built a bed in the back of it. Jesus. And that's how I was able to start traveling. Oh um, my God, that is a yeah. great story. I've never said that story before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the pays the luck of the fine print. Yeah, well, that's yeah. It was a it was a but that was also that was pre recession too. Yeah. So that was when that was just I mean money was flowing around, and I would do odd jobs like odd like event photography jobs, where in the first couple of years 
before I had like I, I had I was in any way known for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I would do work that was not personal to me. I'd photograph like rich people shaking hands and just give them the copies of pictures on CD and take and, and save up the money. I always lived really cheaply in communes and or communal houses and and then save the money from a few months of work and then go on the road and then come back and try to you know get some more event photography work. But I never put that event photography on my website or identified my myself by it. Yeah. But then medium format always felt like the art to me and personal to me because it had a, it had a detail and a richness that I could, I could I felt like the photograph became a window into the world. And, and it also had a slowness and the camera was big. So people noticed me and wanted to interact with me because of, it was an unusual to be photographed in that way mm-hmm. by that machine. And so the combination of the detail a level of speed that large format doesn't have, so I could still capture spontaneous moments, but a presence of the camera that made people pay attention for longer versus the assumption of a snapshot um, just fit with how I wanted to interact with the people I was photographing. Although just the longer lenses of the medium format camera also flatten the space, so it feels more graphic than you know a DSLR yeah. to me. And I like that, that, that the flattened space of the longer lenses. Um, how have you used the time over the last eight or nine months with, you know, the pandemic happening and everyone being restricted in terms of what they're doing and where they can go? How, how have you used that time? It's been a, it's been a combination. My fiance co-founded the only legal event space where artists can live in San Francisco. So we, we moved out of, our house into the event space to live with a range of artists and techies in downtown San Francisco. So the first part of the pandemic was a major life change. I, I no longer have my garden and you know home by the park in San Francisco that I was renting with some other friends. And now we out this way, there's a friend of mine named Orion who's practicing ac- his acrobatic uh, juggling and you know, uh, balance act. Mm-hmm. Um, Savage is probably doing aerialist work on her silks. Um, Florida man is a, our resident drag queen. Um, who's, um, is doing a, a live stream today. Brent is a painter. He's painting that way. Jeff is a tech CEO and he's, he's in this direction. So we have this cohort of artists, acrobats, activists, and techies living in this bubble that we've created in the closed down event space in San Francisco. So that's been part of what we've done for the past eight months is keeping the space alive and safe, figuring out the systems to get everyone food, to make sure that the artists are subsidized, et cetera, making sure people can still be here. So basically we now live in my studio and Irene, my fiance has a room here. So we, 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 we're now in a different space. I've also been editing the prayer photographs I've been making across the country for the first time to see where I've been to then, kind of get a better sense of where I want to go. And I've been editing a book of the black and white photographs from New York City that Stanley Barker is going to publish next year on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So, so far, that's been my eight months. Yeah. It's a good use of your time. Doesn't mean I'm not stir crazy. <laughs> yeah. But I'm well, grateful well, for, all, you know, for, all, for all the things. There's a lot of circumstances of a lot of friends who are in yeah. rougher spots than I am. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer 
for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who are that photographer be? Um, now you're kind of in the Nat Geo vein. No, I'm in, I'm in everything. Because it bounces around, but like I was trying to figure, like, okay, so there's two books I got recently that have stuck in my head. One is Evgenia. This is how you pronounce her last Arbugaiva. Okay. She's one of the, the Nacho photographers where it kind of does what I'm, what I was talking about doing. Like her photographs, they feel like they have their, I can, I, I can look at them. I can know how she made them. Yeah. But I still couldn't make that same picture with the same feeling. She works in Northern Russia. She's based in London, but she, she grew up in. I've, in I've heard of her. Yeah. Okay. So they stick in my head and they have this, they feel like they're telling stories and they feel like they have a, an individual magic to them. They compel me to look at them, but don't let, I can't understand. So I keep on looking. Maria Lacks did a book, Some Kind of Heavenly Fire. She's, these, are, these are new, like I just found out about her work because the publisher sent me this book when I ordered another book from him. Okay. And it's this beautiful book about sort of, I think it's in Northern Finland. And as people were leaving to get jobs in the city, these, this mythology developed locally about ghosts. Yeah. And the book does a very good job at making the everyday feel magical. Oh, I like that. Uh, and there's these sweet little details about like, here's the, and they're just, but not like, here's the thing. And then there's the historical picture behind it. Oh, okay. Well, wow. It's such a sweet little Interesting design. Um, design of it. So there's also some magical photos in there. I've been trying to restrain myself from buying too many books, but I think I'm 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 going to fail. But, I like uh, I like books. Oh yeah, th- th- I that's can t- I can tell. Yeah, I just bought that, and that's just part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to buy another shelf to to make do with all the books that I've been buying. Actually, but, I have a system though. For a while, well, I don't, when we moved, I can't fit it anymore. But I had a print from my f- first book of a the man floating on his back with his daughter on his chest. Yeah, oh, his yeah, clothing. lovely image. Yeah, and Patrick and Anakista. And I had that print above my bookshelf. And then whenever the stack of books got up to the level of his penis, I had to give away more books before I could buy more. (laughs) And it was a really good limiter, you know? And I had another stack where I put on a table where when friends would come over and I'd say, if you would like any of these books, please use them if they're inspiring and I take them. But now I don't, I can't fit the print there. And I keep on buying books and it's like I'm letting myself, yeah, I have to be careful. Well, thank you so much for making the time for me today. I really appreciate it. You have a fantastic voice, by the way. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks to Lucas for joining us. Find out more about Lucas and his work by visiting lucasfolia.com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to David Benson, Shane Balkowitz, and Stuart Savage for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. 
It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge in another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And finally, Happy New Year, and may 2021 be a year filled with joy, laughter, and love. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.